listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on New Books in Intellectual History, we have Clifford Mason, a celebrated playwright, actor, director, and critic who has been involved in the theater for four for 40 decades. Four, sorry. <laughs> Four decades <laughs> and has written 34 plays. Mr. Mason is also the author of Macbeth in Harlem, the Black Theater in America from the Beginning to Raisin in the Sun. Welcome to the show, Mr. Mason. Thank you very much, Dr. Williams. Glad to be here. Thank you for allowing me to do this interview with you. Macbeth in Harlem is a sweeping cultural and intellectual history of Black theater in America, including some discussion of America's foremost public intellectuals, such as Paul Rubson. First, we will discuss Mr. Mason's biography and some thoughts on cultural and intellectual history in general, and then we will engage in a more detailed discussion of Macbeth in Harlem. Mr. Mason, please tell us some more about your work in the theater and writings and how you came to study the history of African-American theater. Well, um, I've been writing since I was 18 years old. I decided at that point I was going to uh, commit my life to writing, and that's what I did. I've written over 34 plays. Uh, They've been uh, produced um, out of town in stock at the Mark Taper Forum, the Eugene O'Neill in New York at the La Mama and on Theodore Row. Um, and I, I have somewhat of a reputation in, in, in certain theater circles. There are these uh, three or four um, present practicing Broadway uh, producers who know my work very well. And the reason why I've never been given um, <clears throat> the um, funding I needed to make uh, a reputation for myself is because my stuff has been unrelenting in this attack on racism. Mm. And uh, you can't do that and expect... Uh, uh, success in commercial theater. Things have to be watered down uh, because there's this overwhelming um, <clears throat> conviction that you can't expect uh, a middle-class Broadway theater crowd that is dominantly white to sit down in the theater, spend a lot of money, and have a play that attacks racism. And the people who are paying the money might think that they're being attacked or something that effect. So the needle never moves forward. It always stays um, in one spot. Um, <clears throat> in terms of my other writing, I, um, I am a murder mystery buff, and I've written three murder mysteries. Um, and the same problem came up with the murder mysteries because I, um, I have one in which I talk about how gentrification um, took Harlem away from black people. So that didn't <laughs> get much interest either. Um, and I've done a lot of article writing, um, as you suggested. One of the articles I wrote for the New York Times was called Why Does White America Love Sidney Poitier? So, and that article brought me nothing but grief <laughs> because um, everybody in the theater crowd, of course, was horrified because they were all, at that point, um, celebrating the democracy because of Sidney's meteoric career, and they were besotted with... Um, his celebrity, because it was perfect in that he was a good-looking, handsome, intelligent, and talented uh, black man whose persona and, who, who, and whose statements when he was not acting 
um, all um, tended to dilute the problem with racism. And this is particularly troubling for those of us who were around because it was happening as at the end of the 60s when everybody wanted uh, to take a fighting position. And he was complaining that they were asking him questions about race and blackness when he was more than that. So as a consequence of which I went after him in this article. And um, <clears throat> a lot of people, influential theater, made sure that I never got any productions, I never got any grants, I never got anything. So <clears throat> it's been a long struggle, and I've been um, at it for, as you say, um, what, what do you say, 400 decades? <laughs> I know. <laughs> He's like, wait a minute. <laughs> <clears throat> and of course, so, I act and I direct. You have to in this business. When you're in theater, you have to sort of be multi-talented, especially if you're black, because you do all those things just to get ahead, just to survive. Right, and, you make that uh, point. And that's sort of what goes on there. And I've done a lot of teaching, too. I taught playwriting at uh, the Graduate School in Columbia, mm-hmm. and I taught Black Theater at NYU, and um, I taught at Medgar Evers. And I started out teaching um, ninth grade English in my own junior high school in Harlem, what they call returning to the seat of the crime. <laughs> <laughs> A Renaissance man. <laughs> so some more of our questions let's get into in terms of um, cultural and intellectual life of African-Americans. And we'll circle back around to some of the uh, issues you've already raised with your in your responses. But I'm interested. So this channel is is intellectual history. But I argue that intellectual history and cultural studies overlap and intersect. I mean, culture is about thought, belief, ideas. And so I wanted to know if you could expound on um, the connection between cultural history or or cultural studies and intellectual history, the history of ideas? Yeah, well, um, forgive me if, if, if I sound um, argumentative, but I think <laughs> it's a specious um, dichotomy because um, you can't really talk about history in any meaningful way unless you talk about intellectual history. Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of stuff that, that people do, um, somebody writes the history of the Zuni Indians and all they do is talk about their wonderful artwork. And they don't talk about the ways in which they were destroyed um, because of the racism of, of Andrew Jackson and people like that. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's not really history. I mean, it's fine to do that sort of thing to get your dissertation and get a job and get appointed, but it doesn't really add anything to the conversation, as people are fond of saying uh, these days. So unless you expand the history to how it impacts in the lives of, of, of the nation and the people involved, unless that becomes a part of the context, it's not really history. You're just... It's an anthropological study, and it is interceptic, and it is um, without much current value, as a matter of fact. So, I mean, mm-hmm. my, I guess my position is pretty strong there. Um, mm-hmm. And when, when in point of fact, uh, people in the past have talked about um, the uh, connection of black Americans to American history, per se, they... Um, they prove that uh, separating the two is, is absurd because of the way in which they have excluded uh, black America from the mainstream history. And as a consequence right. of which, our history um, has seemed to be one of um, stereotypes and, and, and um, vagrant, uh, 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 not vagrant, um, excessive um, caricatures of, of us in ways that don't truly represent us. 
And if in point of fact, the things that we have done and the people that we are have been properly included in the history so that the intellectual part of it, the ideas, the impact on man and his actions, in addition to the facts, if those two have been combined properly for when the black man is being discussed and studied, then we would have a different culture. We'd have, we'd have a different history. We'd have a different sense of, of what black people have accomplished. And that would help to, to dilute a lot of the racism, not all of it, because American racism is existential to the American psyche. But um, in spite of the fact that um, there are almost 100 million people who will vote for a racist president, still there are a lot of good people in America who uh, abhor uh, the racism. And it would uh, behoove us to do more in terms of explaining the full-bodied nature of the black um, contribution to American history. And the, the, the record, the information is voluminous. As Du Bois said when he started um, exploring the culture of Africa, he said at first he was you know, a little hesitant. He didn't know, you know whether or not there'd be enough to write about, would it be enough for a book. Because coming along when he did, you know, uh, at the turn of the century, there wasn't much studies of anything black. He had to do it on his own. And he said that when he started going into the record and starting um, digging in, he was amazed at how much information there was. He was just completely, utterly amazed. And today, today, because of the computer, all the things we need to know about black success, all of it is at our fingertips. It's just one damn click away, right. and nobody makes that click. I mean, it, 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 it drives me to distraction. I mean, and, 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 and it's more than just um, the, um, a list of calendar contributions, as it were. Um, but we can't go into the in-depth aspect of it here because that would take us into a discussion of historiography. Mm. But right. I just want to read a very short paragraph from my book. Sure. on calendar contributions, as I put them. Benjamin Banneker was the key figure in leading the actual construction of Washington, D.C. as it stands today. After the Frenchman Charles L'Enfant gathered up his plans and left in a huff and went back to Europe, leaving Banneker to pick up the pieces and actually do the job. The huge downtown plaza in present-day Washington is, of course, named after the Frenchman and not the native-born black American. It was Crispus Attucks saving the day at Boston Massacre by actually precipitating it. Appointment very clear by Webster. Jean Dusabu, who founded the city of Chicago before Lewis and Clark crossed the Mississippi. Before the Alamo, before Texas was a state, a black man, an ex-slave, was president of the territory, and he abolished slavery there. This is Texas now, mm -hmm. before it was a state. The man's name was Vincente Guerrero. In 1876, Nat Love, the original Deadwood Dick, won the championship of the West as a rider, roper, revolver, shooter at Deadwood, South Dakota. Tony Farr, another ex-slave who had real estate holdings in Mississippi in the 18th century, worth half a million dollars. In San Francisco, the first man to sail a steamboat in San Francisco Bay was black. And it was his own boat. And it was Miffin Glibs who opened the first shoe store in that city. This is just, you know, surface stuff. Right. It's just surface stuff. But yet, it's, it's, it's amazing when you think about how much activity there was. The one point I always make is that 
no matter how bad the history is, no matter how people talk about slavery, about inner cities, about ghettos, about gangsterism, about rap, about violence, da 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 da. The fact of the matter is, from the very beginning, Dr. Williams, from the very beginning, the black race in America has been doing the great things as well as the small. Right. We have been at the top of the mountain when it comes to cultural achievements in this country from the very beginning, mm. even in the midst of slavery. But there's no concept of that. There's no sense of it. Nobody understands it. Nobody even talks to it. Mm. It's almost a, 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 um, um, <clears throat> a situation in which the, um, there's a perverse desire to only um, give black America a public persona of rap basketball and the oversized t-shirt and the twisted cap and the middle class black American is always looked upon with suspicion or looked upon as if he's not a real man or he doesn't really belong or there's something about him that you know he's a nerd and that's that's one of the biggest issues we've got we can't change that conversation and yet the facts are there to change it when I start talking about this stuff to people, educated people, some of them look at me and laugh. You're kidding, right? That didn't happen. Do, 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 do. And yet the facts are there. People who spend their time sending Instagram pictures of their chicken dinner could <laughs> spend some time knowing about this stuff to make them feel better. So my, as far as I'm concerned, intellectual history can't be separated from history at all, if it's history. Right. I agree. I, that's Good. a that's a just a great way to to think about it. Yeah. The history, all history is intellectual history, and I yeah. say yeah. that, and I I, I agree with you, one hundred percent. All history. I think is that I think the reason why you you have you even have to have that conversation is because the academics, um, so, uh, social sciences, uh, the social sciences have always had an inferiority complex when it comes to this, the physical sciences. And so social science has always tried to make itself more academic and more technical than it needs to be in order to give it some supposed validity. So we have a term called historiography, which discusses the different techniques of, of history. It's okay as a label, but to make it an important part of, of, of teaching somebody how to be an historian, it's, it's, it's really pointless. Oh my gosh, I'm sure all academics who hear this are going, are going to shoot me. <laughs> No, this is good. This is. I'm glad you're being so candid and yeah. just honest. Uh, I mean, I tell folks that all the time. Intellectual history, all history. You, you, you can't talk about actions without ideas. Yeah. And um, this idea, you know, the notion that ideas only reside in the uh, behind the closed walls of the academy is incorrect. Fannie Lou Hamer was an intellectual. She voiced ideas into action. Right. And so I think you put your finger exactly on the, on the project to separate, you know, black people from the history of ideas. Right. And to categorize them as not having a history or ideas. Who is this? Right. Uh, I think that there's a project at play to categorize uh, folks like Fannie Lou Hamer as non-intellectuals because what? they're outside of the academy. What? But she was an intellectual. She was she did, more than she intellectual. Did. She was right. one of the. She was one of the most important people in the in the whole process of trying to fight racism 
in the in the first half, right. second half of the twentieth century. Exactly, and she was a woman of ideas. She was she forty years have... old, and she couldn't read or write, and she was plowing a field. Forty years old, no education. Mm-hmm. And at that point, she turned around and became one of the greatest uh, fighters for, for for racism. And she should exactly. have been elected to Congress. But you know why she wasn't elected to Congress? Do you know why? Yes. She gave everything she had to her poor neighbors in Mississippi. Everything she had. Mm-hmm. The last dollar. All they had to do was come and knock on the door. And she'd give them, if she had to go hungry, she'd give it to them. And when she ran for office, those same people refused to vote for her. You know why? Because she didn't have a college education. Exactly. We try to say a certain set of credentials define the intellectual, but that, I it's a more broadly uh, construed uh, term, I think, you know, besides someone who has three or four college degrees, is someone who um, voices ideas into action. And yeah, well, um, look, 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 at, look at Richard Wright. Look at James Baldwin. Right. He didn't go to college. Exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. James Baldwin is one of the most brilliant essayists in the whole history of American letters. Yes. And he Absolutely. didn't go to college. I don't, think, I don't even think he went to high school. <laughs> so on this question of intellectuals and turning towards your book, um, who, are some, who are some of the notable intellectuals associated with the black theater that you discuss in your book? Some are more obvious than not. Yeah. Get into some more details of the particular. Yeah, I, I, just, I just I saw that and I just cribbed a, a, a short list. Okay. For you. And uh, some of these names, you know, some of them you, you don't probably. Okay, so uh, on the black side, there, of course, is James Weldon Johnson. Yes. And he was the great Renaissance man. Um, we haven't got time to, to do justice to James Weldon Johnson, unfortunately. But he was the first black man to pass the bar in Florida. He was the first black man to write a successful modern novel. He was the first black man to be executive secretary of the NACP, and he was the one who made that national organization because before him they were afraid to go south. He um, was a a ranking diplomat in Nicaragua when there was a revolution, and his boss, the ambassador, was held up uh, in the city, and he was in in the southern port, and the admiral of the American Navy had to go to where he was, and he was the one who was piped aboard, and he was the one who gave the American military their orders. So the guy was amazing, really mm-hmm. amazing. And his book, Black Manhattan, is the one that I use um, copiously for my references on black theater because he was very interested in that. Then, of course, there was the great Langston Hughes and Richard Wright. Um, Hughes more so than Wright. But Wright is important in the book because they did do a, a play based on Native Son, and that's a whole story in itself. Right. Um, I don't think the copy is extinct uh, for racist reasons, um, which I won't go into now because that's just too involved. Um, then, of course, there's Lofton Mitchell. I don't know if you know that name. Lofton Mitchell was a historian, black historian, um, and he um, he writes about black theater at uh, in the early part of the 20th century, a period that I cover in the book. I use I use him copiously. Lofton was was one of the guys who um, thought that um, the large footprint that that we were leaving on Broadway in the the first decades of the 20th century 
was one that we should not have left because when things got to the point where they didn't want us down there anymore, they just chased us back to Harlem by rioting. And then as far as he was concerned, um, we should have stayed in Harlem. We would be much better off. Of course, uh, nobody really believes that today. But uh, Lofton was so upset at the fact that uh, all of the great talent that should have stayed in Harlem went downtown. And after the downtown people got tired of him, they kicked him back uptown. Mm. Um, then, of course, there's Abraham Hill, who started American Negro Theater. And Harry Belafonte and Sidney Poitier and uh, Ruby D and Nasi Davis all came out of that theater. That was the beginning of the little theater movement in, 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 uh, among black people in America. Mm-hmm. On the white side, there is, of course, John Houseman, who, who um, produced Macbeth in Harlem, and Orson Welles, who directed it. Then there are two people who you probably don't know. One guy named Nathan Hurwitz, H-U-R-W-I-T-Z. And he did some really good research on Bert Williams and and that whole era. But Mm -hmm. uh, I sort of uh, give him poor marks for making um, the black uh, contribution separate but equal. But he did include it, which is a step forward because (laughs) most historians don't include anything black when they write a history. Matter of fact, the greatest black writer, uh, actor of the 19th century who toured Europe and conquered it, Ira Aldridge, played Covent Garden in England in some, sometimes around um, 1820 or 25. I'm not sure of the actual date. And there are two uh, Harvard-based historians, one of them a guy named the Sumancrust. And these guys both wrote histories of Covent Garden. And both of them got to the point where Aldridge played Covent Garden, and they exclude him and then pick it up after he his run was over. So they just studiously avoided um, um, Ira Aldridge. And these are Harvard professors. Mm. And uh, as I said, Herbert at least did include Williams and Walker in his book about American show business at the beginning of the, tw- of the 20th century. But because he makes it separate but equal, I sort of disagree with him for that. Mm. And finally, there's a woman named Susan Curtis who did a book about the um, play written by a white writer called Three Plays for a Negro Theater. The writer's name was Virginia Thomas. And they played Broadway um, way back when, um, around the same time in the 19-teens, I think. Um, and she, in an attempt to sort of uh, explain or explore the whole idea of black and white um, coming together or um, interacting with one another socially. Um, And in talking about these plays, she sort of goes overboard to make it seem like any little interaction between the two was somehow the other had social significance, even to the absurd degree of saying that because black actors (laughs) were acting in a play written by a white man and they wore costumes that were created by a white designer, that meant that there was... (laughs) cultural intercourse. <laughs> so unfortunately, we, we become the duck-billed platypus, the, the, the goldfish in the bowl, to be examined by everybody in the most ridiculous ways in some cases. <laughs> so those are some of the people that we just that, that we have in the, in the book. So let's turn more uh, directly to the book, uh, Macbeth in Harlem. I, I like the introduction and there were 
few uh, points that you make in particular, and then we'll sort of move through the other parts of the book. You mentioned in the introduction that the Black hero has always had to laugh. Can you elaborate on your conceptualization of the Black hero and why he has always had to laugh? I'm very interested in that, the tragic comic. I teach a course on um, Black film. Yeah. And in that, I incorporate some of this discussion of the tragic comic. Yeah. So, so. Well, well, uh, you probably uh, did a much better job in talking about um, the completeness of that character. And you probably made him more noble and, and, and more um, attractive um, than I do in, in, in discussing him in, in the bold precincts of, of, of white racism. Um, at the beginning of the 20th century, because he's not so much um, tragic in the sense that he's um, a Rigoletto um, or or the clown who killed his daughter and didn't realize it or anything like that. He's he's just really a buffoon, you know, and there's no tragic substance to it beyond the fact that he doesn't have a life beyond being the buffoon. Now, the reason for all of that simply is that, um, and this goes into blackface minstrelsy. Right. The blackface minstrelsy, black people had been in America for over two and a half centuries. By the time the, the plantation uh, was well established in the first half of the 19th century. And they, um, as a consequence of there being so many of them, they were in fact. Um, entertaining themselves when they had a chance. And not all blacks were um, picking cotton for 20 out of 24 hours a day because the society couldn't have functioned if that was the case. So the, the house slave was more educated than many whites who, who um, were poor. Because the house slave had to know how to um, you know, serve a meal and uh, greet people and wear fine clothes and look respectable and all that kind of stuff. There was even one guy who had his um, his slave was such had such a good memory that he entertained his, his 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 eloquent friends by having them match their wits against the wits of his of his slave. And this slave he dressed up you know like puss in boots. The guy had purple shoes and all kinds of other stuff. So you had a variety of experiences going on with black people, but of course. The history only talk, talks about the guy in the field picking the cotton. So, so these people were in a position to entertain themselves independently of any, any, any white um, censorship. And that's how the minstrel show came about. Of course, it wasn't blackface because black people were doing it, therefore it was natural face. <laughs> <laughs> but they um, developed the whole concept of the minstrel show. The wheel around, the oleo, the interlocutor, all that stuff was created by them for their own entertainment. Mm. So here is America, circa 1840, right? Mm. What do they have for entertainment? What do they have? They have to import something from England, which, of course, doesn't work in America. You know, if you for the Shakespeare crowd, you bring in Shakespeare. That's fine. Right. What do you bring for the ordinary guy who doesn't want to sit there and listen to a lot of words, no matter how beautiful they are? How do you entertain him? What is a song and dance? There was no song and dance that captivated the entire country until 
a white man named Dan, Dan Emmett decided, oh, wait, we'll take this minstrel show and we'll paint our faces and we'll make fun out of it. And once he did that, then America had a, a now they had um, a variety show. They had, they had song and dance entertainment. And the blackface minstrel show wasn't something that was done in some backwoods part of Georgia. Right. These guys made tons of money. And they traveled all over the goddamn world. And they all performed before Queen Victoria or King Edward or whoever the hell it was. So it couldn't have been just some funny little thing that was being done on plantations for, right. for white rednecks. It was a big show. It was the big show in town. Nobody realizes that. And because it made so much money, they made sure that nobody black could do it. Mm. So that's, that's the genesis of the black persona, right? right? So the guy can't talk, he can't sing, he can't do anything. So finally, by the end of the century, they let, a black, they let blacks start doing it, you know, and so, so there were, some black sh- uh, minstrel shows were, were so successful that they had to get a white manager so they could make money. Okay. So now we get to the point where it's a turn of the century. And this goes to the other question you asked. And um, blacks didn't have to put on a black face anymore because the country changed. Right. And the blackface minstrel show had lost whatever appeal it had after mm-hmm. almost 60 years, actually, from 1840s to 1900. Mm. So since blacks didn't have to do that any longer, being so inventive, what did we do? We got rid of all that stuff and began to do musical comedy things. We used the minstrel pattern to some extent, but we changed it to make it more in tune to what we consider a, a vaudeville to be or, or, or the early stages of, of modern musical comedy. And we were the ones who were setting a record with that. But when we were doing it for white audiences, we couldn't do anything heroic. We couldn't make love. because We had to just be the buffoon. Because if we weren't the buffoon, they wouldn't come or they wouldn't produce it. So we were forced to be the guy who could only be funny. And that was Bert Williams' tragedy. Yeah, as W.C. Fields and uh, Hayward Bruin and other people have said, he was brilliant. Nobody could tell a story like him. When he told a story, it wasn't a joke. It, it, it was a pantomime. It was, he was a raconteur. He could create character just by standing there and just talking. No hijinks, no jumping off the roof, no turning back, no running up and down, no buffoonery, nothing. Just standing still in the middle of the stage at a Ziegfeld Theater, packed to the rafters, by the best patronage there is, and just talking. And he held them in awe. But he had to be funny. Mm. He had to make them laugh. I was teaching at Rutgers University um, oh, about 20 years ago. And there was a guy who was brought in as a provost. And there was some kind of a seminar. So the place is packed with all the PhDs and all the high people, and he's being introduced to something. I don't know. And the guy, was, he, was, he, he was a guy with a southern background. And he was a big-time black man, right? Going to make a lot of money and have a big power. The guy came in. The first thing he did was to tell a joke. The first mm. thing he did was to tell a joke. And when they started laughing, then he relaxed, then he could talk. That's been his tradition with, 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 with black men who, in public for the longest while. I mean, people like Frederick Douglass and Henry Highland Garnett, and those people didn't play the game. But most people play that game. 
You get before a group of white people and you want to talk to them, you make sure you tell a joke first so they know that you're not a threat and they can relax. That's powerful. That's, yeah. So that, that's, that's been the story all along. Does that answer that question? Yes, that's perfect. Okay. It's in, and like you say, even in um, settings in which you're outnumbered by whites, if you're on the stage or, or you're presenting, you know, in a corporate boardroom to offset that power dynamic as much as possible, if you can, with humor. It's a survival mechanism in a lot of exactly. ways. It's, exactly. You know, <laughs> I'm here to present on this, but that's, that's amazing. <laughs> that um, point. And uh, I see Houston Baker in the Modernism in the Harlem Renaissance gets into the conversation. Oh, right. He, I remember that book. Yeah. yeah, Bert yeah. Williams. And I remember when Michael Jackson died, there were a few essays that were comparing uh, Bert Williams to uh, Michael Jackson. On the one hand, discussing the genius of both of them, but also talking about how they have to mask themselves, right? They're geniuses. Both of them were geniuses. But there's no um, language for black genius. And, there you go. And, um, you, go. And, you know, you know that? Now that, that's a shirt. <laughs> There's That's no a shirt, Doctor Williams. There's no language for black genius. I mean, just the can just I steal that? essays. Can I steal that? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Great conversation. I'm a good time. I um I want to get to a discussion of the art and the artist. I know we. I think we've covered a lot of these questions. Not maybe not directly, but indirectly. But um, I think. In, as we started the, the, the conversation, when you uh, discussed why many people did not want to produce your work, having written all of these plays and talking about race honestly and openly, uh, recently um, the CNN host Don Lemon asked several artists uh, and uh, musicians to come on and talk about the George Floyd murder. And many of them responded, no. Uh, we're not coming on the show because it will um, damage their brand. So, uh, do you think the black the that black artist, such as the case of Robeson, you have an entire chapter on him, have an obligation to speak out about uh, social issues such as police brutality and racism? I mean, are they just here to entertain? Do they have an obligation? Right? What? I mean, I thought that was fascinating. Lemon got very uh, vocal about it. He went to social media. He didn't name names. I don't recall he named that he named names, but he called his artist out. <laughs> so this is yeah. We're gonna get. <laughs> I want to get to that question. Uh, you try. You try to get me in trouble, Doctor Williams. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> I think I know your answer to this. <laughs> you want them to blackball me for another forty years? Is that what you want them to do? <laughs> If Don Lemon had me on, baby, I would have gone to the max for that one. <laughs> I'd have been stomping up and down. <laughs> no, um, it, it, it is complicated because um, when they were going after ropes and there was a very well-known um, black singer, um, folk song singer, his name was Leon Bibb. And um, they called him, you know, to come up and testify against Robeson. And so he went to Robeson. He said, what do I do? What do I do? Because he admired Robeson. He didn't want to betray him. 
And Robin right. said, just, you know, save yourself. You know, if you have to do it, go ahead and do it. Because, you, you, I mean, on one level, and I wouldn't have said this uh, when I wrote the article about Sydney Forday because I was young and angry then. But on one level, you can't tell a man what to do. The same way you can't tell somebody what to write. Um, all you can do is be saddened by their their pusillanimity, as it were, their cowardice. Um, but in, in, in the present situation, people are dying. And, and so many of our people are hungry, especially with, with, with the pandemic and right. the unemployment and all that kind of stuff. That, you know, you would think that artists would have the strength, the integrity, uh, the, the backbone to at least say something. You know, right. it would, nobody's asking you to, to, to um, go burn, baby burn or anything like that. But at least mm-hmm. you can say something. But the reason, the reason why they're afraid is because um, Hollywood does a very good job of, of pretending that they're um, the purveyors of democracy when they're anything but that. Exactly. I totally agree with you um, on that. I, I don't want to get into it because that will just uh, create more enemies for me. But um, the whole the whole thing with, 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 um, with Black Panther, I mean, you know, Black America was sold a bill of goods. I mean, so many people just raved about that film, loved it, it was fantastic. Even my son. And what was the sneaky part of the deal? One, that all this great stuff was happening in some foreign country that doesn't exist. And it was black on black, which means that they weren't attacking racism. Mm -hmm. And number two, and this is the worst part of it, is that who was the villain of the film? A black man from America. Mm -hmm. And yet, that film made more money than God. And more black people saw that than saw anything else. Right. So that, so you see, anybody's going to make um, money in the business, they're stuck with that hegemony. They're stuck with that tyranny. If they even look like they don't uh, like it, if when they're on the set, they look at the line and say, well, I don't think, next thing you know, they got somebody else playing a part. So that's, 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 that's the, um, the raw truth of the situation. Uh, and any, any, any black artist who says, well, I'm not political, is telling a lie. If you vote, you're political. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the sad thing, too, about Black Panther is that uh, Ryan Coogler made his career on Fruitvale Station, which, you know, Michael B. Jordan should have won an Oscar. He was new then, but that was, you know, too edgy in the sense that he's talking about real issue, Oscar Grant getting killed, putting it, and that's where Ryan Coogler was when he began, but then, you know, giving him the project of Black Panther and Killmonger in the film, Michael B. Jordan again, is sort of, you know, bury me in an ocean where my ancestors died, you know, towards the end where he says that to Black Panther. And I think, like you said, it's just sort of, what if, what have we been sold here? 
you would think that Kugler should be able to control the narrative, having made it. They left they, they, that money on you, man, and that's all she wrote. <laughs> you, 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 can't, you, you, can't, you can't mess up that contract and go home and expect your woman to go let you in the door. <laughs> she going to say, you better go back there and get the money, boy. Iowa <laughs> Davis, after the help, said famously she would have never she should have never taken the role of the maid who, did? who said that viola davis she did recently, say that. recently she came out and said oh it's a role i should have never taken she yeah. had this big but she's made it now in hollywood and it's just, yeah yeah, yeah. Once, 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 once you do the dirty for them then you're all right <laughs> you got to pay your dues you know you you you, you got to grin and shuffle and then you can get then you can get somewhere but unless yes. you grin and shuffle for them, they don't trust you. Yeah, the intro part of there where you just laid out and talk about the the laughter and and the hero has to always laugh. And you can take that down to the present. I mean, I think that's just brilliant the way you laid that out. And um, I know your book doesn't go as far as into, uh, you know, the 60s and beyond uh, Black arts movement and so on. Um, but I did want to at least touch on uh, National Black Theater and your thoughts on that, uh, Barbara Antu and National Black Theater in the hi- larger history of Black Theater. Maybe this is book two. <laughs> no, I'm not writing any more books. <laughs> Before that, can I just uh, give you a list of some of the people I mentioned in the book? Sure. You don't take a second. Just so that people get a sense of, of, of how wide the net is. I'm just this. This yes. is just a list of names, okay? Okay. Okay. Queen Victoria, Louis Armstrong, Paul Robeson, Josephine Baker, Bert Williams, Ethel Waters, Orson Welles, John Houseman, Jack Johnson, Harold Arlen, Ethel Barrymore, John Barrymore, John Gielgud, the white critic killed by African drummers drumming, <laughs> the <laughs> Provincetown Playhouse, George Raff, David Belasco, Robert Benchley. Christopher Marlowe, Jose Ferrer, W.C. Fields, Florence Ziegfeld, The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, Theophile Gautier, Victor Herbert, Uda Hagen, Lawrence Olivier, Simon Legree, Tyrone Powers' grandfather, Edmund Keane, and the Theatre de l'Ambigu Comique in Paris. Those are just some of the names and places and things that I write about in the book. So people get a sense that it's not just a dry history Right. Um, in a scholarly fashion, but it's a, it's it's a trade book, as they say, and it's 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 it's, it's for the, it's for the public at large. I, I don't have a PhD. I don't want a PhD. I'm not trying to get tenure anywhere, so I'm not writing that kind of book. <laughs> but it's a sweeping history that could be used, I think, in history of the theater, history oh, yeah. of Africa. Oh, yeah. I mean, no it's about it. yeah. such yeah. a um, yeah. that's why I use the term sweeping. That yeah. uh, it's a book that can definitely be used in so many different courses. And beyond just, you know, for the, um, you know, public, um, it's, I think, can be easily used in courses on African-American cultural history. Oh, definitely. It certainly is a good source book. There's no question about it. Yes, it's it's very sweeping. So far as Barbara Antier is concerned, um, it's one of the tragedies of, 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 of American culture that, the American people have always been um, 
unhappy at the idea of the government doing too much for its citizens. And the reason for that, as you probably know, is that if America does too much, if the government does too much for its citizens, black people are going to benefit from it. Mm-hmm. So in order to keep black people on their knees, they make sure that the safety net doesn't really exist or is porous. Um, and so there's the antipathy towards government because government could tend to make the playing field more even. And so the forces that don't want the playing field to be even want the government to keep its foot out of uh, the national conversation, especially in the arts. The only time uh, the forces of reaction want the government involved is when they need the government. (laughs) So um, Tony Randall, the um, actor who did the uh, odd couple thing on TV for years, um, he tried to start a a national black theater. I mean, a black theater, a national theater. Mm -hmm. And the idea was England has uh, a national black theater of England. Uh, It was the old Vic, and then they turned to national theater. Um, and so the idea was that America should certainly have a national theater. And he tried it, and he got enough money to open on Broadway. And the plays were fairly well done and everything. But nobody wanted a national theater. The mm-hmm. idea would be probably that the government might subsidize it, and that would be socialism and all that nonsense. Um, a problem that they don't have in England. Um, so Barbara Antier, who I knew very well, she she goes all the way back to Negro Ensemble. I don't know if you know that. And she started with them. Um, and it was a good idea and, 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 and noble effort. And she had to fight just to get the, the, the building and, 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 uh, and keep the lease and not lose. I, don't, I think they almost lost the property um, in terms of the mortgage, but they've kept it. I went up there once to see to see something, and I was I was very saddened by the the, the level of, of, of the production quality. Um, the building is is going is run down, and I think one floor is given over to some furniture warehouse uh, operation. And the space is you know it's, I don't know 100, 150 people, um, but nothing too appealing about it. There's no real lobby. Uh, there's no place where you can even buy a soda or a cup of coffee or anything. And the impact on it, the cultural life of Harlem today is, is practically negligible. And wow. that brings me to a point in the book that um, I think speaks to why the whole history of this thing is so, is so interesting. My first paragraph of the book talks about this uh, very simply. On April the 14th, 1936, an all-black production of Macbeth, directed by Austin Wells, produced by John Houseman, and funded on the Federal Theater Project of the Works Progress Administration of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's second term, opened in Harlem at the Lafayette Theater on 7th Avenue, just south of 132nd Street. Every major newspaper in the city covered the event. Every major newspaper, Dr. Williams. Imagine that. Mm. Right, yeah. A play opening in Harlem and every major newspaper sends a critic? <laughs> and Eleanor Roosevelt lent her August presence to it, accompanied by Mayor Filarella LaGuardia and Hallie Flanagan, head of the National Black Theater, National Federal Theater. Can you imagine the mayor uh, of New York going to see a play in Harlem today? Right. <laughs> a 10-block square area was cordoned off. 10 block! And right. more than 10,000 people stood in the streets just to witness the arrival of celebrities, 
Inside, all 1,300 seats were filled. That's the opening paragraph of the book. 1,300 seats picked and 10,000 people. Yeah, that's amazing. And what have we got today? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah, that's... Nothing. That's... So while it was a noble dream, I don't think it's been a success. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately. And I'm yeah. saddened by the fact. Yeah, and that's the importance, why this book is so important, I think, the history, culture, intellectual history, ideas. Like I said, it goes in so many different directions and the sweeping assessment of theater and culture. The thing that amazes me about the whole thing, and I wrote the book, right, is I can't understand. I think about it. I can't get my head around the fact that Harlem could have been that then and can't be that now in any way, shape, or form. And I make this point in the book throughout. In many ways, we have regressed. Yes. It's I mean, we, 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 we've gone forward, but somehow the other, there's, there's some built-in mechanism to, to, to disconnect our, our, our progress from issues that, we, that you, we should be taking forward with the progress. And part of that is because the progress is only going in the areas in which the culture at large allows it to go. And I'm not denigrating all of the areas in which we're successful. You know, I'm a big sports fan, you know, as far as that goes. I love my basketball. But the, 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 the type of, of, of um, credibility that, that black men and women have in sports, Jesus Christ, we don't have it in any place else. Right. Not in letters or the theater. No. If, 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 you, if you walk anywhere, I'm, I'm a New Yorker, right? Mm-hmm. going to a supermarket, stand in a line, anything. And there's another black, black guy there with you, another brother, right? 99 times out of 100, you guys can start talking about sports and you'll get along fine. <laughs> <laughs> Never seen him before in your life. He doesn't know you from Adam. But always say, man, the Nick shouldn't have sold so-and-so. And next thing you know, you guys are kissing cousin. Because that's what they've allowed us to be. Because the game means so much to them that they wanted to be at its best, and therefore they allow us to have that kind of freedom, to make those kind of comments, to dress up in a suit and sit on, uh, uh, on a soundstage and in front of the cameras and discuss it and talk about it and argue about it back and forth. It's fine. So, so what we are is we're caught in um, a, a spider web of you can do this, but you can't do that. Mm. And the amount of, 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 of black people in America today who are successful um, in business, politics, um, sitting on the boards of the biggest companies and all that kind of stuff, those people don't get any public play in any way, shape, or form. Black people don't even know about the accomplishments of, of their own people in this regard. Why? Because nobody wants to cover it. They don't want to talk about it. Nobody's interested in it. The things that, 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 that everybody knows about, about us are the things that the white culture wants people to know because they're comfortable with those things. But the other things, forget about it. And mm-hmm. as Frederick Douglass said at one point, I'm working on another project having to do with Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm. Um, America can jump up and down and shout bravo for revolution in another country. <laughs> the good guys took over from the bad guys and threw them out. 
But if a black man in America talks about throwing out the bad guys, he gets thrown out. Mm. He gets thrown out. Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody. All of the stories, the, 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 the few people I mentioned to you earlier on, especially the, the, the cowboy, not love. Think of all the cowboy movies that have been made in this country, in Hollywood. Think of them. You can't even count them. The first, the, one of the first talkies was called The Great Train Robbery. I think it was a salad, actually, in 1919. It was a cowboy movie. And yet, has there been one black cowboy? Just one? <laughs> you, you, can, you, can go, um, you can go on YouTube and find half a dozen of these guys who were fantastic. They were like Wyatt Earp ten times over. Great stories about them. I even uh, included one of them in, in a, my previous nonfiction book called The African American Bookshelf. James right. Beckworth, he founded a pass across the Sierra Nevadas, like the Bonner Pass, and his people didn't have to eat each other to get across. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's I mean, that, that, that in a sense is, is the Byzantine uh, monster that we're up against. Yeah. Um, there was a middle class black girl who wanted to be a, a singer, and she wanted to sing ballads, and she wasn't making any money. So she reinvented herself, said, I, I've been to jail, and I was a prostitute, duh, 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 and she did rap, and she made a fortune. There you go. It's, <laughs> that's the clown, though, that you identified at the beginning of the book. Yeah. That's yeah the laughter, yeah. the, you know, yeah. it's amazing. So you're talking about, so in conclusion, uh, your future research writing projects, you sort of began to answer the question in terms of uh, your work on uh, Frederick Douglass. What are other projects... What's next for you? Volume two to this, right? No, 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 no. That's, that's the end of that. I have to go back to my first love, which is theater. <laughs> I have a play called American Dialogue. Okay. And it's, uh, it'll, it'll be an anthology film. The first dialogue is Paul Robinson insisting that Truman pass an anti-lynching bill in 45. And, of course, Truman said no because we're not ready. And that's when Robinson went to the UN and, and, and said America was committing genocide. Then the second dialogue is between Ida B. Wells and Woodrow Wilson 30 years earlier, discussing the same thing. So I point out that the damn problem never got solved. Right. And right now, today, today yeah. as we talk, uh -huh. mm -hmm. the anti-lynching bill is in the Senate. And uh, what's his face? Paul from, from, uh, right. from Kentucky. Up. Rand Paul yeah. from Kentucky. He's holding the thing up. Right. So we have not been able to pass an anti-lynching bill, even though at least 5,000 black people were killed between 1865 and 1965. Mm-hmm. And America can't pass, and we're supposed to be a democracy? In whose, in whose nut house is that possible? <laughs> so, so that, and so the third, third dialogue is between Lyndon Johnson and, and, and Martin Luther King, because Johnson was an egomaniac. He had to be the big man. So when King forced the issue by the protests and the marches and the press coverage, then Johnson had to get on the bandwagon because he was going to control it. He was going to let anybody else control the conversation. So he passed the anti-poverty bill and, and gave black people um, food and, and, and um, Medicare, Medicaid, and said, well, give me a chance. Let me catch my breath now. We'll come back uh, five years. And, and um, Dr. King said, no, we ain't come back five years. We'll come back tomorrow. And he forced him to pass the anti the, the voting rights bill. 
Right. And so then he had to pass that. So he figured after that, you know, that uh, he had King in his back pocket. And when King came out against the war in Vietnam, he started calling him nigger this and nigger that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes. Uh, the fourth uh, dialogue is between Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. And you know what that story is. Uh, mm-hmm. I think she bore him six children over a period of 30, 40 years. And he promised to free her and never did, even in death, Dr. Williams, even in death. After having sex with her from the time she was 14 to the time he died, even in death, the man wouldn't, wouldn't free her. Right. <laughs> and the last dialogue is uh, not in the real world. It's, 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 it's somewhere between earth and heaven. It's between Booker T. Washington and Malcolm X, in which they fight over the, um, what is the best way forward for, for black people to, to get their, their, their freedom and their equality. And that turns into a very heated argument. Um, and um, at the very end, they come together. And um, uh, Malcolm, of course, being a Muslim, so he um, he says, Salaam Alaikum uh, to Booker T. And so Booker says, oh, well, Salaam Alaikum. And so Malcolm <laughs> says, oh, I'm going to make a Muslim out of you yet. <laughs> and Booker T says, not before I make a pork eat out of you. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's going to be a film because I can't do it on, on stage because it's 22 speaking parts and it's too expensive for mm. a commercial producer. So that's going to be a film. That project is finished. And I'm in the process of, of, of organizing a reading to, to raise the money and get the representation and all the things that you have to go through. Right. Hopefully the atmosphere being what it is, it won't be that problem. And finally, the last thing that I have to that I'm working on now, I have over a thousand pages on a series. It's not a mini series; it's a full series, um, which I call American Royalty, and it traces the birth and escape from slavery and and rise to prominence of Sojourner Truth, Frederick Douglass, and Harriet Tubman, and I interweave all three narratives together and make one narrative out of it. Hmm. And um, I, I'm at the point now where we're going to just be about a decade before the beginning of Civil War. I think I'll end it when the Civil War begins, because that's all they were fighting for, was to have a fighting war to get rid of slavery. And uh, for them, the whole way of solving the whole problem was to get rid of slavery. Once a black man was free, as far as they were concerned, everything would follow after that. And, uh, of course, that didn't happen, but that's another story altogether. But the story of, of all the struggles that they go through and, 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 and the heroism of those people in order to get to the point where they got to and become as great as they were is right. what I write about. And uh, that's going to be a, that's, that's going to be my first uh, script for television, my first and last, actually. So that's what I'm doing. What a great work. Well, Mr. Mason, we have taken up enough of your time today. Not at all. It was a pleasure. I could talk for the next five hours. I know. We got to do this again. We have to have a part two. But I, I want to thank you for participating in the interview about your important book, Macbeth Harlem. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Williams. You're welcome.